This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. If you're a regular listener to this program, you would know that every time I have a conversation about La Mama Theatre, I always begin it with a disclaimer that I'm a member of the Volunteer Committee of Management. Uh, I'm just making that quite clear now because my first guest for the morning is the Artistic Director and CEO of La Mama Theatre, Liz Jones, who joins us to bring us up to speed with what's happening at La Mama. I, like many other people, was basically woke in shock on Saturday morning to discover that a fire had gutted our beloved theatre in Carlton. Liz, it must have been an awful shock for you and all the staff as well. It was indeed a terrible shock. Um, I guess, Richard, because I've been at the theatre for about 45 years, it's something I've dreaded. And we've had near misses, you know, we've had a log falling out of the fire and burning through the floor or, or um, you know, various artists actually lighting fires that have given people little shocks. But it's totally unreal that the actual thing has happened. And uh, yeah, when the police told me, I, I screamed. Um, yes, that it was sort of like that. Because although it's... Thank God there was no loss of life and thank God no person was actually involved in the fire in any way. Um, La Mama had become like a... Very, it's a very organic space and it had become as close to a person almost as you can get. Yeah, that was, that was certainly <laughs> my feeling when I kind of was standing in Faraday Street on Saturday morning looking at the smoke rising from the burnt-out burnt shell of the building. Yes. It, the closest I can describe it is feeling like somebody I, I love had died. It's, That's right. It's, so obviously it's... And I've only, I haven't been involved with La Mama for a fraction of the, of the time that you had. But <laughs> so the, the, the important things to let people know about, I guess, is that this isn't the end of La Mama oh, by any no. means. No, the La Mama spirit will, of course, rise from the ashes um, as a very energised phoenix, I hope. Um, I guess the good news is that it would seem that um, the building as it stands at the moment is um, structurally strong enough to be um, restored. So, and, and it is being regarded by the insurance company and by La Mama, by everyone, as a restoration project. Um, and that's very wonderful, I think, because, uh, because La Mama, because it had been a continuous space, had just taken on such an important role. And I, and I want that to be as closely as possible from the outside reconstructed um, and that's what we'll be fighting for and moving towards. I have already had a couple of friends say, oh, so does that mean that it'll be built, rebuilt as a modern theatre? And I'm like, well, part of the charm of La Mama is no. that space, that, that simplicity. Intimate, yeah, mm, the yeah. poor theatre, you know, the poor theatre, um, that's part of its charm. It's also part of, it's really an integral part of its artistic raison d'etre. Um, and we'll preserve that. We, the, you know, we may indulge in creating something. We, you know, we might put a shower upstairs for the artists. <laughs> radical who, idea. Yes, a radical <laughs> idea. Um, but essentially, no, the magic of La Mama was um, its simplicity and we'll guard that very carefully. Now, 
obviously the La Mama Courthouse Theatre around the corner is unaffected and continuing as normal. That's right. But for people who have perhaps attended a show at La Mama uh, and not seen the rest of the building, upstairs is the office where you and all the staff work. Upstairs is a magical space. People, someone once said, like, going upstairs at La Mama is like taking a little trip to the country. <laughs> Because there were sort of usually things like dogs or birds and 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 paintings and and collections of things and um, a, a, a very quirky um, uh, little office space which closed up magically and became um, you know the the green room the dressing room the everything for the artists at night. And that, and that we sort of guarded that sense that during the day it was ours, but at night it was the artist's space. So that's been lost. Luckily, 90% of the archives or thereabout last year went off to the University of Melbourne. Yes. So that's safe. I know you've lost diaries, you've lost scripts, we've lost artworks. And the the staff are temporary home, temporarily homeless, as are all the shows that have been booked well, yes. into La Mama in the coming months. So what's what's the plan there? Um, the plan is well. At the moment, we're operating out of the um, Kathleen Sign Building, um, which is a wonderful community centre just down the road from La Mama, and they've been extremely supportive and made sure that we've had a space each day to operate and, and, and regroup in and, you know, and have our lunch in, you know, just very simple sort of things like that. We've, um, we've considering it a sort of a point of pride, really, to make sure that every show that wants to continue will continue. And so if you, if you uh, look at our, in our little booklet or, or whatever, um, you know, the shows are all still going on. They're going on at... Um, the Butterfly Club. They're going on at the David Williamson Theatre in Paran. They're going on at the, at Arts House. They will be going on somewhere until hopefully we find our own little temporary space. Which is one of the things that I'm finding enormously heartening about this is the, the fact that organisations like the Butterfly Club uh, and so many other um, arts peers and colleagues, not just in Melbourne but from around the country, have been reaching out to say, it's terrible news, what can we do to help? It's extraordinary. It's just, there have just been hundreds and hundreds of, of individual, group, organisational offers. Um, it, it's, it, I mean, it's extremely heartening and, and, and wonderful for us because hard to get demoralised when so there's so much love. <laughs> it's certainly one of the things that's kind of buoyed my spirits this week is that, that outpouring of yep. love from, I mean, I've had personal messages from, I know, the Street Theatre in Canberra from kind of uh, a com- complete strangers in WA because yep. I've written about uh, the, the fire at La Mama on Arts Hub, so people have been in touch that way. And I've obviously I've heard the Minister for Creative Industries, Martin Foley, Who's speaking. Been fantastic. Yep, speaking kind of really supportively of of La Mama and expressing uh, the the uh, essentially saying we will do what we can and work with other levels of government and so forth. Yes. Now, if people have just tuned in, we're talking about La Mama Theatre in Carlton. An electrical fire on Saturday has meant that the theatre is gutted. It is continuing. You can check out lamama.com.au for details of all the shows and how they're being rehoused. But, Liz, I know a lot of people have been reaching out and saying, how can we donate? Yes. What kind of fundraising campaign is yep. there? At the moment, there has essentially the announcement has been 
please wait. Just a, only wait a minute. Uh, we will. We will. Um, if it's not already on our website, we will certainly um, put something on our website so that you do, you will know where to donate. Um, and we will be having fundraising campaigns um, because, yeah, we really do have to move on constructively for this. And it's going to be quite. It's going to be an expensive move. Move. Of course, we're insured, but insurance is always limited. And, and we have to we have to create a future out of this. So we're grateful for all help in whatever way people can give. So at the moment there is um, a fundraising campaign for La Mama. That is a separate fundraising campaign. That's the La Mama Access for All campaign. So if you want to donate to that, fantastic. But if you want to donate to the future of La Mama uh, and to the rebuilding of that heritage-listed, beautiful, unique, sometimes challenging building to work in if you're a theatre maker in Carlton itself, just we will be announcing details of that. You know, I had a lovely phone call yesterday, Richard. It was from Kate Blanchett's mum, June, who rang up to say that Kate would like to make contact and could she have my phone number. Richard, I gave it. Fantastic. <laughs> I, I suspect that there'll be not just uh, La Mama alumni like Kate and so many other yes. actors and writers and directors who've been involved historically, but so many theatre lovers as well who yeah, will want oh, to look, help. Every, yes, people, that are, people we know and people we don't really know, but we love them all. <laughs> so uh, keep your eyes peeled uh, on your usual social media feeds and on the La Mama Theatre website for more information about a fundraising campaign to restore and rebuild build La Mama because that's the message. It's not a demolition job, it's a restoration project. Liz Jones, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. And my next guests have joined us in the studio from uh, a company whose work I very much adore, Little Ones Theatre. But instead of talking to, I know, a playwright or a director, I thought we'd do something a little bit different today uh, and talk to uh, two of the kind of core design team from the company. Uh, Katie Svetkidis, who who is the company's lighting designer, and Eugene Tay, who is the set and costume designer for the new little one's work, The Nightingale and The Rose. Welcome to you both. Hello, good morning. So, Eugene, the last time you were in, you Mm. were kind of talking about the Green Room Awards. So, nice to have you back with a different hat on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Katie, last time I caught up with you, we were talking about the fact that you were running for kind of the mayor of Melbourne. So, congratulations (laughs) on your campaign. Thank you. Not successful, but nonetheless, thanks for flying the arts flag. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it definitely opened up conversations that. You know, I feel there was success there even if I didn't win. Yeah, I think so too. So let's talk uh, about The Nightingale and The Rose and and Little Ones Theatre. Now, one of the things that is so distinctive about Little Ones is this kind of refined camp aesthetic, which the two of you uh, help create. So what is it about Little Ones and Oscar Wilde, for starters? Because this is by no means the first (laughs) Oscar Wilde production the company's done. No, this is our third third Oscar Wilde, yeah. yeah, So we... We did um, Salome uh, a few years ago, and that was um, part of the Malthouse... The Helium uh, Helium program, program. yeah. Yep. And, um, and then, of course, last year, at the start of last year, we did The Happy Prince, and uh, Nightingale and the Rose is actually from the same collection of sh- children's stories as The Happy Prince. So um, I think when we first sort of envisaged that show, we were thinking about actually combining a couple of stories into that one show that we did at La Mama, but then we sort of decided that instead of trying to mash them together, we'd sort of split them up. Yeah, we wanted to give it a bit of breath 
you know. Yeah. Um, to, because we wanted, it's they're such beautiful stories. We didn't want to like overstuff it. So it's it's now become um, part of a trilogy. Um, so Happy Prince was the first part, and Nightingale and the Rose is the second part. I'll have to go home and read that collection of Oscar Wilde fairy tales and try and work out what the next one would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why? I mean, but why wild? What is it about wild stories that in, so intrigues the company? Hmm, do you want to answer that one? <laughs> um. I think primarily, um, I think Stephen has an obsession with Oscar Wilde. Um, but also, I think he, uh, Wilde reflects um, our company's um, sensibility um, in terms of um, how we approach works and what our works say as well. Um, and I think he's such a sort of romantic, like queer icon, which for me really sums up a lot of what drives like our work and so that is sort of something I think that we're quite interested in in sort of yeah I guess like the way he uses language and sort of is it's all very like operatic and like high stakes and I think that's sort of something that I think really resonates with our company as well. So let's talk about the the aesthetics of making a show and how you construct kind of a, a visual kind of language and look for the show. And let's start with the lighting, because lighting designers don't get, get a lot of publicity and airtime. <laughs> no. So kind of, to begin with, why, how, how and why did you become a lighting designer? Um, well, I guess, so I actually was studying music, um, weirdly, a very long time ago in another life. And um, I was at Melbourne Uni and I got involved in the Union House Theatre there um, through the Music Theatre Association, which some of my friends from my music department started many years ago. And um, I decided, I don't know, I think I was, like, looking for other things to do in theatre and then I had some friends that were doing lighting and I was like, oh, that looks kind of cool. I'll do that. And so um, I did, like, a bunch of shows there and at the time um, Susie D was the artistic director and there was sort of a lot of um, really great support for, like, young women who wanted to do things in technical areas and I did, like, two mentorships in my final year in my arts degree while I was studying there and I'm um, with Paul Jackson and... Oh, not with Paul Jackson, sorry, that's a lie. With Richard Barbre and F. Topi Soropas, who both, you know, were pretty well-known lighting designers and I think that kind of spurred me on to wanting to do it all the time. So is lighting design essentially painting with, with light? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think what I really loved about it was that, and I still do, is that, like, I sort of had studied music for most of my, like, adolescence and then I'd also studied art history and been an artist and so it was a way for me to sort of combine that love of, like, music and temporality and actually making pictures together. And then what's the collaboration like and the relationship like between lighting and set design, for example, because the fabrics that you use are going to look quite different under particular lighting setups. So yeah. obviously it must be a, a very collaborative kind of professional um, relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm so glad um, Katie and I were able to uh, develop together um, with this company because I feel like my design has increasingly become really, really focused on how the light um, responds to the set. So a lot of my designs uh, nowadays are very minimal and they are um, they sort of go down to uh, what materials I use, the textures, how, how they pick up the light and how they evoke uh, mood, emotion, um, just from how, you know, how the mm. light hits it. 
Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of the the curtain in and and the stage in Merciless Gods, for example, the production out at kind of Northcote Town Hall last year. That kind of the 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 blue thrust of the stage and the the kind of rich colour of the really simple kind of elements in some way, but still kind of very rich and very evocative. Yeah, yeah. So the it's um, it, it does seem very simple. I mean, in fact, it's just I was just telling someone it's basically just a triangle <laughs> and a square, uh, but the triangle you know, has this really forceful quality to it. And the blue that we use was this very particular um, paint. It's called Eve Klein Blue. Um, and it's so matte that it's sort of like, you know, the, the, the light just gets onto this paint and sort of like the, the particles stay on it for a little mm. bit before getting released. And then the red is a really great contrast to this blue. And someone was telling me psychologically, when you look at red and blue, it's sort of... Um, it it does something to you um, in your mind, it, and that's why like sirens are red and blue because it sort of calls you to attention. Yeah, right. I mean, I think also um, like it's quite, kind of quite unusual our process in that like I as a lighting designer will be involved in sort of design conceptual design conversations from the very beginning almost, and so I think that allows us to really integrate the the two things together into sort of the design concept, and so we can, I guess, sort of confidently sort of make something, a design, a set design that might seem really simple because we know that the lighting is going to help shape it in certain ways. Yeah, and in, in a, a lot of uh, the case, I, I really trust that Katie's going to light it um, in a particular way and like light it really well. So I'm not afraid to um, pare back on the design at all. <laughs> that, that idea of being involved from the get-go is not necessarily the way that a lighting designer would work in a main stage company, for example, where kind of you're brought in relatively late in the in the process to go, right, and there's the set and now light it. Yep, definitely. Uh, yeah. Which I think um, then you just kind of have to like green and bear it and make the best of it but I think yeah I mean I think that's what's so special about our company is that we're not I mean I think because we're also quite because we're all now co-artistic directors of little ones we all actually make decisions about what shows we're going to make what shows we're going to put on what's the next thing we're going to make what what are the and what are the sort of the design parameters and I guess like Eugene and I met when we were both studying at BCA so we've known each other Mm. for like over 10 10 years years. I'm like like outing my age and Stephen and I met when I was at Melbourne Uni so like I think the three of us have worked together for almost 10 years now Mm. and like you just have a kind of language that you can draw on that you don't sort of have to work through too which I think is a big part of it and I also have to say um, that Stephen does a really great job pulling together all these two these all these design elements and then the you know the the how the actors um, come in and 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 create this holistic image. So Stephen, for those of you who don't know the company, is uh, director Stephen Nicolazzo. Uh, and you also, the, the kind of fourth member of the, the company who we haven't mentioned yet, the other design element, the sound design, that's Daniel Nixon? Daniel Nixon, yep. Mm-hmm. And has Daniel also then been kind of like involved from the, from the get-go? Uh, yes. Yep. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so we're just like pointing at each other and no one can You answer the question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, like Dan will be like, I guess because the score, like our shows are like, the underscoring is such a huge part of um, a lot of our works. I mean, music and the sort of references to popular culture and popular music are huge. So he'll be quite involved from the beginning as well, particularly with these sort of more devised pieces. So say Happy Prince, Nightingale on the Rose, where 
sort of, I guess, text is maybe of the minimal, then um, the sound is really the thing that's sort of like helping to like push the trajectory or push the story forward. And so Dan is like very much a part of those conversations from the very beginning. And with this um, Happy Prince trilogy, the, uh, the atmosphere and imagery are, are really important. So that's why the, the design is, you know, plays a really mm. big part in the creation of the work. So The Nightingale and the Rose is the latest Little Ones Theatre production uh, presented at Theatre Works from the 30th of May until the 10th of June. The very first Little Ones show I saw was at Theatre Works, which was Psycho Beach Party. Uh, and I, I, I haven't seen everything the company has done, but I've tried to see pretty damn most of it. I saw uh, Dracula at Theatre Works as well. I've seen many of the other works. How challenging is Theatre Works as a space to work in? Because it... In the wrong hands, it can be a bit of a cold, impersonal barn. Mm. I love the space, but like 45 Downstairs and other spaces where independent theatre is staged, it can be challenging to work in. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, it it absolutely can. Uh, Fortunately, uh, both Katie and I have been working there. I mean, I've been working there every single year for the past, I don't know, eight years. (laughs) So I, I know what the challenges are and I, you know... Uh, there, there are some things that you have to address, you have to um, cover or, or make use of. And, yeah, it, it's an advantage to have worked there so many times before. Yeah, and I think it's kind of... It's one of the only sort of independent spaces that's so big, which is, like, is challenging, but also, like, well. is kind of quite an amazing opportunity, I guess, for an independent company because there's not so many op- places that, that like are that you can create like a kind of big set in. And so I think the biggest challenge is like how do you make that work when you have like little to no money and, um, you know, and how do you like, I guess for me it's always about like how do we carve up the space? Like how do we make that, like make the space shift and cut it up in different ways with the lighting? I don't know if that makes sense. It, but, makes to- yeah. well, it certainly makes sense to me, but yeah. <laughs> Um, so, Little Ones Theatres, The Nightingale and the Rose, we should probably talk a bit about yeah. the show itself, kind of rather than just sure. the company. Yeah. But, um, so, as we said, it's a, it's an Oscar Wilde fairy tale. Uh, it's been described as a lush, gothic fable uh, in uh, which a nightingale hears the longing cries of a young student desperate to find a red rose to give to his sweetheart. Tell us just a little bit more. I think, um, unlike a lot of the other short stories in the collection, The Nightingale and the Rose, it's, it's the most bleak uh, because... Mm, I think it's like a kind of bleak love story that's sort of the antithesis to The Happy Prince in a way. Um, and it, I think like all of Wilde's works, there's always like a, a possibility of like reading sort of autobiography into the way he's sort of written some of the characters. And I definitely feel like that's a part of this work as well, whether we've sort of explicit made that explicit in the production. It's definitely something we've talked about. Um, but, yeah, it's sort of a bleak love story. Yeah, um, the, and the fact that there's no redemption um, is really, really heartbreaking and uh, in, a, in a really different way to The Happy Prince. But I think we're going to... We, we, we are... Um, really exploring that bleakness. Yeah, and I think we've also, like, I, at the same time, like, most of our adaptations, there is, like, a queer romance at the heart of our adaptation. So the student is um, a f- is female and the nightingale is also female. So, um, yeah. I look forward to seeing it. Yeah. 
The Nightingale and the Rose by Oscar Wilde, presented by Little Ones Theatre and TheatreWorks, is on from the 30th of May until the 10th of June at TheatreWorks, 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda. You can book at theatreworks.org.au or call 9534 I've been chatting with Katie Svetkidis and Eugene Tay from Little Ones Theatre. Thank you both so much for coming in. Thanks, Thanks for having Richard. us, Richard. Uh, I'm making an effort this morning. I've only had one coffee and I've interviewed, it feels like, half of Melbourne this morning. And uh, But it's been fun. And speaking of fun, I'm joined in the studio by Marie Cardi, the Artistic Director of the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Hey, Marie, how's it going? I'd prefer speaking of fun than speaking of making an effort. My next guest <laughs> is really be, making an effort. It's going to be a, a hard slog. I, I won't get anything out of her, I'm sure. <laughs> um, how are you, my love? I'm good. I'm good. really well. It's been a weird week, um, as I mentioned at the start of the show, I'm on the Committee of Management at La Mama, and oh, so the fire yeah, has been yeah. kind of devastating. Of course. But Is it devastating, but also, I mean, the community just straight away rallied around. Like, the passion was palpable, I yeah. think. So you must have felt devastated but buoyed at the same time. Yes. It's a weird mixture of emotions. It is, but it, like I've been getting messages from uh, theatre makers and friends and colleagues in Darwin and Perth and mm. Canberra who are all just going, not La Mama. Yeah. So it's not just Melbourne that's responded, but it's kind of the, the, the theatre sector as a whole and kind of not just people who work in the arts, but people who may have seen a show there or written something there 20 years ago and moved on from the theatre or whatever. It's been great. Yeah, and I do think, I mean, well, whatever you guys choose to do, but I think there is a sense of everyone supporting a rebuilding or a renewal of some type. It doesn't feel like that flash in the pan where everyone's like, sorry for your loss, bye. People are in it for the long haul with La Mama. People are very committed. Yeah, well, that 50-year history has, mean it's, has meant that it's embedded in the city, as I would have to say Melbourne Writers' Festival is embedded in a different way because it's not just a, a festival of books. It's not just about reading. It's about ideas and conversations. And it really feels like um, Melbourne Writers' Festival is also embedded in the city in a, in a different way, but a very kind of rich and integrated way. It, it reflects Melbourne. Yeah, it does. And that's been both the beautiful and slightly terrifying thing about coming on as AD with a, a vaguely different artistic direction. I do think, I mean, I'm very conscious of all the beautiful things that are great about Melbourne Writers' Festival, having been there as an attendee for years and really maintaining those traditional elements of a strong talks program and a strong ideas program. But I come from an arts and theatre background. I come from an event curation background and I want to turn it into a bit of a book party. So I want to take all those lovely talk things, have them there as part of the core program. But I think Melbourne of all cities is a place that can really open its mind and heart to the expansion of a festive festival. I think that's really what Melbourne's Melbourne Writers' Festival does need to be. We are in the same city as the magnificent Wheeler Centre who do really strong talks programming year round. And I think for Melbourne Writers Festival to survive and to sustain itself, it has to provide something more than just, it's like the Wheeler Centre programming, but in 10 days, it's not. It's kind of, and I think that's a very specific part of why I was recruited to the position is because... I want to make a book party. <laughs> and <laughs> you're, the short answer. you're doing that not just uh, in the festival season itself, but kind of expanding the operations of the festival out so that there are other events running throughout the year leading up to uh, the book party. Uh, so the Book of Fate 
yes. uh, is now up to chapter four. For people who don't know the Book of Fate, these are kind of immersive celebratory events, often in perhaps in an unusual location or yeah. with a uh, kind of a, a left of centre theme. Which are are they fundraisers for the festival, or are they just an opportunity for the festival to expand beyond that ten day program? I think they they provide a few different services. One of which is sort of explaining to people and perhaps maybe a very traditional MWF audience who go, well, I'm, I'm a bit uncertain about this new direction and what's it going to take away and trying to show it doesn't take away, it adds on to what is already there and show people what I mean when I say sort of literary arts festival and it's a, a bookish party, really. So the soirees, the Book of Fate events we've been doing since February, we do monthly events and they're really kind of drinking, dancing, music but with a literary motif or some spoken word. The one we've got coming up this Friday is a silent party at the State Library. The audiences are asked to sign a vow of silence as they enter the State Library. But then after that, it's a party. We've got the Sugarfed Leopards playing, Tech Tech Ensemble, Toga Rock. There are immersive performers all through the library but you're not allowed to talk. You have to find other ways to communicate and party on and smooch. I love that idea of like a vow of silence uh, for starters and because it's a library and it's, yeah. it's traditionally the place where people go, shh. Yeah, no no talking in the library but partying in the library. And, we, you know, we're collaborating with the State Library for this event and they are, I mean... I'm someone who goes, well, what can we well, what can we sneak in and what can we try? And meeting with the library events team who are so magnificent, they're like, here's a space under the stairs that nobody uses. Do you want that? Here's, and people get to walk around the magnificent dome in the State Library with drink in hand and come around a corner of... I found out, you know, the big... The, the octagonal wedge... They're just called wedges. I was fine. There was... Or segments. I wanted some really special library name, but I think the eight wedges. So there's going to be performers in there in all these little nooks in the library. I went to Nocturnal recently at Melbourne Museum and I did, even though it was a bit of, it turned into a rave cave and I felt a little bit 100 years old. But at the start of the night, I got so scandalised and excited by the fact I was walking through the taxidermy room with a glass of wine. I'm like, look at me, it's night time and I'm at the museum and I'm drinking. And I feel like that being able to let loose in the State Library and the, the dress code is bohemian. So we've looked at all these you know, pictures of Varley Myers in the State Library's collection. They've got all these amazing uh, images of bohemian Melbourne and all the kind of artists and writers who have been through the State Library over the years. And so I want to see all the you know Melbourne bohemians running silently around the State Library, listening to music and partying their faces off non-verbally. Because the acoustics of uh, underneath the dome are beautiful. So the idea then of... I've seen poetry in there before. I've seen live music in there before. So it, it's a beautiful space. And then you've got all those balconies at yeah. different levels, which are just perfect for someone to pop out of and orate or, <laughs> or sing. But then, as you say, there's all those other rooms and spaces and halls that have, some of which have only just recently reopened, for example. Do you know the bat wings, Richard? The bat wings? Yeah. We're using the two bat wings. And all I would say that if you are attending on on tomorrow night, which I believe that you should in your bohemian costumes, non-verbal, try and find that there's there's little secret nooks in the library. We're allowed to use them. It's my favourite kind of... I mean, I love immersive theatre and I love immersive parties where you sort of step into a cupboard and there's a performer in there. So anything, that's my jam. That's the whole Melbourne Writers Festival. It's all in cupboards now. No, it's not. Uh, so it's been... We've we've pretty much locked off the program for this year for the, for the general program, which is August 24th to September 2nd. So that's really exciting too. And it's been great for, for our team to run these events, um, the monthly Book of Fate events, to, I guess 
expand that performative element. There's a lot more theatre in this year's Melbourne Writers Festival program. There's a lot more music performance. There's a lot more, I guess, drinking and dancing and interaction as book well partying. as yeah, book partying as well as the formidable Ronan Farrow is our first guest that that we've announced. Did I you was see just that? going to ask you about that. Oh my goodness, Richard! So for people who don't know Ronan Farrow, this is the journalist who who broke the Weinstein story. Yeah, he did in the New Yorker. Um, son of Mia Farrow and Woody Allen. And he's been a prolific advocate and a very strong voice for the Me Too movement, particularly journalistic sense. He just won a Pulitzer Prize. After we booked him, which I thought was very generous of him, uh, we booked him to come to our festival and then he won a Pulitzer Prize. I said, thank you very much, Ronan. That's very kind of you. So he's going to be in conversation with Tracy Spicer speaking about his experiences as an advocate and a journalist. And he's just a very erudite, wonderful human being. So we're really excited. That should be a fascinating conversation, having those two on stage together. Yeah, I believe so. And I think for me personally, I look, you know, my appointment in the in the role as AD of MWF and, again, so as I said before, trying to make it as inclusive and safe as possible for people who you were saying about Melbourne Writers Festival being embedded, people have a very specific idea of what, what it is and what they like. And I didn't want to terrify people by going, here I come, here comes the cha-cha conga line through Federation Square since Ronan Farrow, we have a lot of guests who are about ideas and words and books and authors and all that sort of stuff. So I'm not sort of making Mardi Gras. It's just taking the Melbourne Writers Festival cake and adding some sparkles on the top. The, the visual kind of image I'm thinking of is, yes, there, there will be think, think books, think conversations on stages, think signing with your favourite author afterwards, but then also just drape a feather boa on and kind of glide out into the night to some unexpected ice skating poetry party. Oh, don't give away my ice skating poetry party, Jam Richard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is that is the stuff that I like to do. And I just think, I mean, I'm not a conventional art maker. I couldn't make a conventional writers festival if I tried. So, but it's absolutely from the heart. It's about humans and human experiences and I'm really really excited about it. So, the Book of Fate yes. chapter 4 is happening this Friday, the yes. 25th of May, 8:30 p.m. at State Library Victoria and uh, co-presented by the Boon Companions who make wonderful live art experiences. And if you've not had a live art experience and you're a literary lover, it seems to me that the Book of Fate chapter 4 kind of uh, a bohemian silent party uh, at the State Library is the perfect introduction. I think so. And, you know, when you see a band like Sugar Fed Leopards or Toga Rock, how do you express your delight for a band if you can't say woohoo and holla? I think the challenge is on the audience, but I'm really excited to share that with people. Marie Cardi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.